So if you would, please open your Bibles with me to the book of James. The book of James is near the end of your Bible. It comes after the book of Hebrews. And in my Bible, it's on page 1,549, if that helps you. Two weeks ago, Devin introduced us to the book of James. And today we'll continue our journey into the lives of these first century Christians. In his introduction, Devin described how this book is a fitting complement to our current study in the book of Proverbs. As James provides for his readers similar guidance to that in Proverbs, he's instructing them how to live out their lives wisely and with sincere devotion to the Lord. Unlike most of the New Testament writers, James is not writing to a specific church, but to groups of assemblies of believers that he describes as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. In doing that, he's referring to their Jewish origin and heritage and identifying them as the new Israel, those whom Jesus Christ has redeemed and will one day bring home to glory. It's important for us now as we study this to understand the context and to know the circumstances of these believers because that's what forms James, the essence and the purpose of what James writes to them. These groups of believers have been dispersed. They've been forced to leave their homes in Jerusalem, once part of the Jerusalem church where James and other elders cared for them and they've been forced to leave because of persecution. And having no choice but to settle in foreign lands, they're experiencing continued persecution, oppression, and even poverty in what James describes as trials of various kinds. We might be able to relate to a more modern day dilemma as we've witnessed televised reports from Ukraine, we've seen families and individuals who, because of war, have had to leave everything behind and cross borders into foreign lands under very dangerous and perilous conditions. Now, James recognizes that the Christians he's writing to are struggling, but not only with difficult circumstances. They're struggling with how to live out their Christian faith. You see, James is writing to these believers to correct them and to reprove them about specific problems in their Christian practice. Even in the midst of a world that for them has been turned upside down. Let me ask this morning, have you ever been in a perplexing situation where you, where you ask the question, why is this happening to me? I think like these early Christians, most of us in this room have asked that question. As a practicing physician, I encounter people asking me this question almost every day. This is especially true when I break the difficult news to them 
that they've been diagnosed with a chronic or a debilitating illness such as diabetes or after they've suffered a stroke or they've been diagnosed with a condition that has a poor prognosis or limited options for treatment such as metastatic or inoperable cancer. The question inevitably comes as their world seems to crumble around them, Doctor, why is this happening to me? Why? You may be facing your own perplexing circumstance. Maybe you're having difficulty making ends meet or you're feeling overwhelmed caring for a child with chronic needs or chronic illness. Perhaps you yourself have a chronic condition that you have to suffer with day in and day out. Perhaps you've experienced a broken relationship where trust has been betrayed. You might be asking the question even this morning, why is this happening? The reality is that this is the human condition. And this is the question that James will answer for us this morning. So please pray with me. Lord, you are a good and wise God. And we are simple and foolish and needy people. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word. And Lord, that you would open to us the glories of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I've titled our message this morning, Three Keys to Finding Help Under Trial. Three Keys to Finding Help Under Trial. I've divided our section into three headings. We must be steadfast. We must see a gracious God. We must be single-minded. We must be steadfast. We must see a gracious God. And we must be single-minded. So if you're in James chapter 1, look on with me as we read our text. This morning is James, 1 chapter, uh, James chapter 1 verses 2 through 8. And we're going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But... Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, 
unstable in all his ways. After James' very brief greeting in verse 1, he wastes no time and jumps right into his exhortation, almost with a sense of urgency or utmost important. Read with me verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. By placing trials at the beginning of his letter, James indicates that the difficulties these believers are facing is the primary reason he's writing to them. He knows they are suffering. But how remarkable is this? James doesn't begin his letter as you or I might begin a conversation with a troubled Christian. He doesn't say, brothers, I'm so sorry life is hard and you're suffering so much. No. He begins with a command. He says, rejoice. Count it all joy. If we remember the context and the experiences that these believers are experiencing, this seems bizarre. But it is in the midst of these complicated and very difficult circumstances that James says, rejoice. And this is not a suggestion, it's a command. Count it all joy. He's compelling them, he's compelling them, be joyful. He goes on in that same verse, count it all joy, my brothers. He calls them my brothers, which in the context of this letter is meant to refer to men and women. But he doesn't identify them simply as brothers or brothers and sisters, but as my brothers. He's communicating his love and devotion and his pastoral care to them. The phrase that James uses, all joy, can also be translated pure joy. James, as he commands his readers to rejoice, is not telling them that there's only one way to respond to suffering, like only joy. You can only have joy when you're suffering. No, he's exhorting them that in their current circumstances, as painful and as hard as they may be, this should be an opportunity for genuine or sincere rejoicing. You might ask, well, when are they supposed to rejoice? He goes on to say in the second half of verse two, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, not when things are going well, but when things are not going well. And you'll also notice that he's not specific. He says various kinds of trials. James allows for the many kinds of trials that all Christians will experience in a fallen world. And so James begins his letter. He begins with a command. He's not vague. He's direct. He's almost even blunt. And so after hitting them over the head with this command, James quickly reminds his readers 
there's a purpose, there's a purpose to your suffering. Rejoice, he tells them, because your suffering provides an opportunity, a sovereignly ordained opportunity. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The suffering that they are experiencing, it's not random, it's not accidental, God is not unaware of their trials. There is a God-ordained purpose to their suffering. The purpose of these trials is to test their faith. And as they endure, the testing will ultimately produce steadfastness. The verse also says that they know. This communicates a sense of assurance or confidence. But how did they know that these trials were in fact designed by God? And what confidence did they have that the testing of their faith would in fact produce steadfastness? You'll recall that James started his letter by reminding his readers of their past, their heritage. These various groups of believers would share a common historical context as Jews. I believe James intentionally reminded them in verse one of their heritage in the original 12 tribes of Israel. They would naturally call to mind God's faithfulness to their forefathers, especially in reference to Israel's experience as exiles, as they are now. James is, James is instilling in them a hope for the future. He's laying a foundation by reminding his readers that just as the Lord was faithful to your forefathers, he will continue to be faithful to you, the new Israel. They would be familiar with these words from the prophet Jeremiah, who he wrote to the exiles of his day. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you hope and a future. These suffering Christians, these believers exiled from their homes, would know that the same sovereign God would faithfully bring to pass his plans for their lives. Verse 3 goes on. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now you might ask the question, why does our faith need to be tested? You might be quite comfortable with your faith just as it is. Well, the word that James uses for testing is found in the Bible in only three places. It's found once in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1 and twice in the Old Testament, Psalm 12 and Proverbs 27. Both of these instances in the Old Testament refer to the process of refining silver or gold. And this is the way that James uses that word. James, James is encouraging his readers that the difficulties of life are intended by God 
to refine their faith by heeding it in the crucible of suffering so that the impurities would be refined away and so that their faith would become pure and become valuable before the Lord. So why does our faith need to be tested? Well, because if not now, we will inevitably suffer. We will suffer in this life. And the Lord is providing us the necessary tools so that we can endure and our faith can grow. The rest of the verse reads, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For James, suffering, suffering has as its primary result steadfastness. Other translations render it perseverance or endurance or even staying power. As one commentator put it, like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, so the Christian learns to remain faithful to God over the long haul when they face difficulty. Now, I'm aware that we do not have a church really of bodybuilders, although there may be a couple here this morning that fit that description. But I think most of us can relate to this illustration. If you want to get strong, you don't lift five-pound dumbbells for the rest of your life. You lift heavier weights so that your muscles, as they are strained, and they come to the point of exhaustion with time, they become stronger and stronger. This is steadfastness. James continues in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James goes on to instruct his readers that while steadfastness is to be the result of suffering, it only happens to the believer who responds correctly in the midst of their suffering. Some translations render the Greek in this verse perfect work instead of full effect. You might read, and let steadfastness have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think that with the use of this word perfect, James has in mind two things, two important lessons for his readers. He's encouraging them, one, to look forward to that day when they will one day be perfect, seeing the Lord face to face and fixing their eyes on this hope helps them endure their trials. But James is also thinking of his readers' spiritual wholeness, their completeness in this life. As he does often in this letter, and we will come to find that over time, James is likely reflecting, reflecting the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where as the Savior called on his disciples to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. James is referring to the perfection of their Christian character, their maturity, being the outcome of their suffering. So while, test, while suffering tests their faith, their right response to their suffering allows them to take full advantage of all the benefits that God has for them. 
So James, in these verses, in essence, what James is saying, rejoice, beleaguered, and suffering Christian. God has ordained these trials to test your faith so that you can grow and so that the impurities of your character can be removed. So be steadfast. What hope that gives us this morning, Grace Church. This brings us to our second heading. We must see a gracious God. We must see a gracious God. Verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In this verse, James, he abruptly shifts from a description of spiritual maturity to a discussion of wisdom. However, I think this abrupt transition is intentional because James knows, he knows that wisdom is necessary in order for us to view trials from God's perspective. We need wisdom. The spiritual perfection, which is the goal of our suffering, can be only achieved with divine wisdom. And this should remind us of another teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. As James writes in the second half of this verse, he says, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This echoes Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7 where he encourages his disciples to ask God for what they need. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus goes on to say, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. God is reminding his readers that God, I'm sorry, James is reminding his readers that God gives wisdom to those who ask because he is a generous and he's a good father. With James' use of the Greek in this verse, he's also calling attention to the Lord's sincerity and to his eagerness. The Lord doesn't offer a gift one moment and then pull it back the next. He's not swayed by competing desires or motives within himself. He desires what is best for his children and he will provide it. The Lord also, James writes, does not give with reproach. He doesn't find fault or criticize us for not having the wisdom that we need in order to endure our trials or to otherwise obey him. James is writing to these believers to communicate. It's essential for them to see God's grace and his love so that they can endure their suffering. You will see that James' description of God in this way is in direct contrast to that of the fickle or the doubting person that we will encounter in the next verse. So let's turn to our, I'm sorry, this takes us to our third and final heading. 
We must be single-minded. We must be single-minded. Verses 6 through 8. Let's start at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. While James makes it clear that we must pray and we must ask God for the wisdom we lack, he makes it equally clear in these next verses, we need to ask the right way. It's not just a matter of asking, but the right way. We need to ask with the right motives and, the de and desire, as he says, in faith with no doubting. James' description of the doubter in verse six follows immediately his description of a generous and a sincere God. So since, I'm sorry, so our asking for wisdom must coincide and match the way in which God gives. God gives out of love to benefit his children and he doesn't vacillate. He doesn't waver in his intentions. The word that James uses for doubt in verse six can also be translated dispute with oneself. Dispute with oneself. So while I think James understands that Christians inevitably experience uncertainty or hesitation in their faith, I think he has in mind a stronger kind of doubting here. It's a basic division within oneself. A basic division within oneself that brings about wavering or an inconsistent or a changing attitude toward God. I think you'll see this more clearly as James goes on to describe the life of the doubter as a life that vacillates back and forth like a wave. So he continues in verse six. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And so the picture that he paints is not that of a huge wave crashing on the shore or crashing on the rocks, but rather the sea with its waves always changing from moment to moment with the variations in the wind. And the result is that everything is in flux, everything's in motion. And so when a gust of wind comes through, the direction of the wind change, the direction of the wave changes. There's no consistency. So the one who doubts does not pray to God with sincerity, but due to these shifting winds, the shifting winds of their motives and desires, the doubter wants wisdom from God one day and worldly wisdom the next. In essence, their life is characterized by hypocrisy. As Proverbs would warn us, the doubter would hearken and listen to lady wisdom one day and woman folly the next. And James has a stern warning for this person in verses seven and eight. For that person, verse seven, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James concludes this section of his letter, chapter one, 
by characterizing the one who doubts this way. They will not have their prayers answered and every part of their life will be unsteady, precarious, or insecure. Double-minded literally means with divided soul or double-souled. This is a phrase that in Greek, it most likely originated with James. James coined the term with divided soul in order to emphasize to his readers his concern. His concern for them that they display a wholehearted commitment to God. Not double-minded, but single-minded. Otherwise, their lives would become unhinged. Again, reflecting Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, James' warning should call to mind for us the description that Jesus gives in Matthew 6 when he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Brothers and sisters, Scripture is very clear. Divided loyalties cannot be sustained. They have to be settled one way or the other. The double-minded who vacillates back and forth in their allegiance between a, world, a worldly life of folly and a life devoted to obedience, that double-minded person will ultimately succumb to the pressures and trials they face. But the person who remains single-minded in their devotion to the Lord receives wisdom and all that they need to flourish and to glorify God. So James paints for us in this section, he paints for us a picture of the testing that will inevitably face every Christian. And he provides the essential elements to help us in our suffering. We must remain steadfast. We must recognize the grace of God. And we must not doubt, but remain single-minded. James helps us look at our trials differently, through a different lens, a perspective that's governed by the providence and the goodness of God. But you'll notice, James sets the bar high in this first part of chapter one, recalling Jesus' words as he reminded us, you must be perfect. Well, that's where the tension lies. We're not perfect, we fall short. As Paul writes in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By our lack of faith, by our doubting, by our divided souls, each of us fails in our own strength. While we cannot do this on our own, James points us to a generous God, a God who graciously gives wisdom and all that we need to endure our trials. As he reminds us that Jesus has said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So this morning, you may be perplexed 
with your own circumstance and asking, why is this happening to me? Or you may be listening and faced with a decision, wondering perhaps, should I take that promotion and move out of the state with my family? What steps should I take to mend that strained relationship? What school should my children attend? Or perhaps, who should I marry? These are difficult questions. While you may not have a specific answer, you have a generous God. A God who gives wisdom to his children who ask him and grace to those who come to him in humility. Even if life is not particularly difficult now for you, scripture is clear, we will all face trials and suffer eventually. Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But Grace Church, we have a generous God. One who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? <coughs> Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. Jesus Christ has proven to be steadfast even when we're not, and perfect and complete even as we are not. So let us look to Jesus for strength and for grace and for mercy and for forgiveness. Please pray with me. Father, we have been presented this morning with a picture of hope and joy, even as we face the many different trials in our lives. And we cannot do this on our own strength. But thank you that in Jesus Christ we have a perfect Savior, and Lord, that through him you provide the wisdom and grace that we need. In whose name we pray, amen.